On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, Scott Radley sitting in for Rick Zamprin today. We are going to tell you all about what to expect over the next 24 hours, Wednesday, Thursday, lots of weather coming. None of it pleasant by the sounds of it. Anthony Farnell will join us to talk about that. On Pink Shirt Day, we're going to be talking about meanness online, not bullying necessarily, meanness uh, with a twist. This story has a twist. You'll have to stick around to find out what that is. The Around the Bay Race has a new finish line, has to move. We'll tell you all about that one. Um, the idea of rewriting an author's work, Roald Dahl, the former, the deceased now, but a British author, is having some of his work rewritten to make things less offensive. Is this a good idea? It's making things maybe more commercial, but is this what should be happening to books? You probably have been able to return something for free that you ordered online. That may be coming to an end. We'll explain why that is. And Ontario needs a million and a half new homes. Pretty much everyone agrees on that. But who's going to build them? We have so few builders. We are short 100,000 workers. How do we bridge the gap between not having the people to build homes and the homes we need built? All of that coming up on the podcast. Stay with us. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. We're told that we are expecting something really nasty coming in over the next, well, over the course of today and into tomorrow morning with a little combination of everything just for extra measure. Anthony Farnell is the chief meteorologist with Global News. He joins us now. Anthony, how are you today? I am doing okay. Watching over uh, all the computer models that are coming in, and now uh, we switch over to radar, satellite, and of course, uh, just temperature, which is going to play such a crucial role with this upcoming storm. Okay, so th- this is this is one of these ones that we often hear. Okay, we're expecting a big winter storm, which is snow. That's fine. Whether it happens or doesn't happen, we know about those. And we also hear about, so this seems like a mix of a little bit of everything. Is that because of fluctuating temperatures? Is that because what would lead to us getting snow, ice pellets, rain, all these things? Well, this time around, unlike a lot of the previous storms this winter, the the surface temperature where we all live is going to stay below freezing throughout the entire duration. So it's not a matter of rain or snow. It's what happens above where we live, up at about 1,000, 2,000 feet, up to even five or 6,000, that we're forecasting this layer of milder air to move in. There's just so much moisture coming up from basically the Gulf of Mexico, and it's going to bring in that layer of warmth. Now, the tough part forecasting is how thick is that level? Is it thick enough so that snow melts, turns into raindrops, and then only freezes on contact at the ground? That would be freezing rain. Or does it have enough time to freeze back or only partially unfreeze so it becomes ice pellets? And that's something that's a lot less dangerous but also uh, on the way with the system. I, w- I was going to ask, because I'm looking at a map here that was posted on the Global News website from, I think this might have been posted yesterday, and where the, the freezing rain is, where the ice pellets are, where the snow is. And we seem to be at that point, now things change quickly, but at it, when this map was posted, we here in Hamilton were right in that middle bar of mostly ice pellets, which as you say, is probably of the all the options is probably the best one. Is that still looking <laughs> like it's the case 
Yeah, it's still uh, looking like most of this is going to fall uh, with ice pellets. The best shot at snow will be early on, so throughout the day today, and then it does transition. And I do think there's going to be several hours of freezing rain, and that is uh, the worst outcome, and that will be late this evening. So uh, driving just going downhill. Uh, if Just as an example, if this was all snow, in Hamilton, it would be a, a 30 to 40 centimeter snowstorm. So there's a lot of moisture that we're working with. I guess if you have 10 centimeters of snow, five centimeters of ice pellets, and then 10 millimeters of ice accretion, uh, you're, you're not getting the worst of anything, but the combo, everything but the kitchen sink, as they say, is, is coming our way. So the ice, the idea of ice pellets now, okay, here, let me get into my being just totally not knowing what I'm talking about here. The idea of ice pellet, uh, freezing rain, clear, understood. You're, you're creating a skating rink on the, on the roads. That is a disaster for any kind of commuting and everything else. Ice pellets, uh, I know what they are, obviously. <laughs> We've all experienced ice pellets, but does it create the same commuting nightmares? Well, they're basically like small ball bearings, or if you're in the States, it's called sleet, but it's the exact same thing. And it, it definitely reduces the accumulation. If it was snowflakes, which have a lot of air in between each of those individual dendrites or snow, uh, that that's a fluff factor, we call it. So when you have ice pellets, it's a lot more compact. But it doesn't change much when it comes to snow plows getting out there and um, where to put it. And if you're shoveling your, your driveway, it's just very heavy. And then again, it's ice pellets and then freezing rain on top of that. So it just cakes it in. So it's not exactly going to be uh, easy going. But uh, yeah, those those ice pellets, I think, are, are something that that is going to be most of this storm and, and something that uh, is tough to shovel, but maybe doesn't knock your electricity out like a pure ice storm. Okay, so what do we want then, Anthony? If uh, we're going to get something by the sounds of it, so what is the order that would be the best for us to create the least amount of problems? Oh, I, I mean, the best case would be if it stays all snow, but that really doesn't look likely. So, uh, yeah, I think the fact that it is ice pellets coming. Uh, one other thing I wanted to add is that when you get these ice pellets, Salt doesn't work nearly as well. And the no. rate of snow and ice that's going to be falling is something that we don't even see every single winter. It's one of those high-impact, quick-hitting events that somehow is at its worst right during the evening rush. So right around dinner time is when we're expecting the heaviest activity. So all that playing in, uh, I mean, it's a bad storm. Uh, if it was all freezing rain, it would be potentially one of those two or three days without power situations. And there are some areas of concern down towards the southwest, closer to Lake Erie, um, Windsor, onto the um, Detroit side that are going to be dealing potentially with this ice storm. Before I let you go, why, why would the salt that the salters do not work as well with the ice pellets? It's just the same thing with uh, snowflakes. You have a lot of air in between it, and it, it it just easily melts when it reaches the ground. When you have these ice pellets, it's basically like a chunk of ice. And if ever you put even uh, road salt on, let's say, uh, a, a puddle, you know, it, it just creates that small circle of melting right where the ice is versus the entire thing going, which you would have with, with snow. So uh, it, it's just kind of specifics, but it, it plays a big role when, when you're wondering, why hasn't my street cleared uh, a day after this storm? And, and that's something that, uh, I mean, I've lived through numerous ice storms, including the big one in Montreal, and, and that was the case. Uh, this is not comparable, but it just takes a lot for those uh, 
those plows to get out there and, and clear the roads. We, uh, we always appreciate you coming on, Anthony, not just because of the update, but because we always get at least one new word. There's accretion today, there's dendrites. We will put dendrites in our weather <laughs> ver- vocabulary, so we have that one ready to go for next time. Anthony, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist for Global News. Uh, Buckle down by the sounds of it. We are expecting something unpleasant over the next 24 hours or so. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Today is Pink Shirt Day, Anti-Bullying Day. And a new study that's out, a new survey of young people in this country has found that quite a few of them, a third of Canadians have experienced online meanness. It's a really interesting word that I want to take, I want to talk about with uh, the person who is behind this poll. Dr. Cara Brissin-Boivin is Director of Research at Media Smarts. Uh, they are the group that is behind this. She joins us now. Doctor, thank you for this. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I, I, I'm really interested, before we get into this, I'm really interested by the word meanness because you could have used bullying, uh, but it's a different word. Why the different word? Yeah, we use online meanness and online cruelty. And we are referring to things like calling someone a name, threatening to physically hurt someone, you know, spreading rumors, posting or sharing an embarrassing photo or video of someone without their consent. But it's, it was important for us to use meanness and cruelty because we've learned in our work, especially our interviews with youth, that they really are sort of pushing back against the term bullying because of the kind of stigma and label that comes with it, that there are all kinds of contexts, interpersonal relations uh, that happen online in which a person might be, you know, engaged in meanness, but, you know, they don't necessarily want to be labeled or called a bully. Um, and so, you know, we did something a little bit different here and we really, um, I think, um, you know, attempted to reach young people where they are. It's and look, I applaud you for doing that because I've had, I've questioned at times when people use the word bullying. It seems to be thrown around very easily, and it seems to me that it means something. Excuse me. It seems yeah. to me that it has a definition, and that a critical t- word. Now, you know, some may take issue with what I say, but calling someone a critical thing once I gets often categorized as bullying. I like your word meanness. It se- it seems to capture it much better. Yeah, we found it captures a wider breadth and depth of experiences. But one of the other really important things coming out of this study is that, and it's being echoed by other research as well, that the the experience of online meanness and cruelty is not as sort of cut and dry, if you will, that you know as we'd like it to be. And by that I mean there aren't these kind of stereotypical sort of victims and perpetrators. You know, our research found this really complex overlap of young people who are engaging in online meanness are experiencing it and witnessing it. And that if you're engaging, you're more likely to have experienced it and vice versa. If you're experiencing it, you're more likely to engage in it. And that is really important, not just because it, you know, it sort of makes our understanding of the experience more complex, but as a result, it means our responses have to, uh, have to kind of change to address that complexity. Absolutely. As well. I mean, I, I almost think like there's, there's the twist right there. If we had the sound effects, it'd be dun, dun, dun. I mean, that's the, the idea that because bullying, again, it becomes a difficult word. If you are the bully, but also the victim of bullying, it, it's a much more complex thing, but that seems to be what you're finding. The twist here is that those who have experienced it also give it or vice versa, which leads mm-hmm. me to wonder, is this in some cases, and I don't want to dismiss this in any way or diminish it, but is this, I mean, back when we were on the playground, you might say something to someone else. There's no nuance in social media. 
And you might have said something to someone as a joke or even joking around, but you don't, there's no nuance in how something comes across when it's written down as opposed to when it's said. And I just, I wonder if there's any, um, if this is a different venue that we, we haven't yet figured out how to, how to read all the things that are on social media. Do you understand what I'm saying? That it's. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. So there's two really important things that you're talking about here. One of them is what we call empathy traps. When we are online, it is much harder to know the sort of intention and impact. And those things are very different. Um, so, you know, what you're talking about intention, you know, if somebody's joking and we were talking to some young people, you know, about how, you know, but I joke around with my friends and we call each other names all the time, but What's really important is, you know, the way in which those um, conversations are happening, not in a vacuum. When we are online, we are connected. We are part of large networks of of others that can see and engage in in those conversations as well. And the risk is is two things. One, that, you know, engaging in that kind of meanness and cruelty, even as a joke, might invite others to behave similarly. And you you may not perceive that as a joke. And secondly, it normalizes the behaviors in ways that are really problematic um, because, you know, it signals to other youth that that is the kind of culture of acceptance in the space and makes them less likely to push back when they see this kind of behavior. And so it can have a bit of a silencing effect. So we often try to remind, you know, young people, but frankly, all of us need to be reminded that when we're online, we don't have those same kind of social cues that we do when we're face to face. Like you're speaking about, we don't, you know, get to see someone's body language when we make a comment. So it's harder for us to understand the intention and the impact. Right. So if I call my friend a nickname and it's in, it's a well-meaning term of endearment, but it may be a little cutting, but we call each other a name. That's one thing. But if you, someone else then sees it and jumps on board, we may, it's easy. I mean, even as adults, if someone says something online, we misinterpret things all the time because we, as you say, we don't have those cues to catch what the intent of that is. It's a really, it's, it's one of the real challenges of social media. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and well, I wish we had a lot more time, but the, the flip side of that is it doesn't mean that people aren't actually being mean. There are people who are in fact being mean a lot of the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, there's also this sort of pile on effect when we're online, you know, it could be liking or sharing sort of a comment or piece of content that's, you know, was intended you know, to be mean or was perceived or received as being mean. You know, we also engaging with online meanness and cruelty, even when you're, you know, just liking something or resharing it tells the algorithm on these social media platforms that, you know, that's kind of content that people like. And so we'll push it, you know, higher up into our feeds. Um, so, you know, there's that pile on, there's that amplifying effect. Um, and so I think, the, again, the real risk here is that it creates unsafe spaces for people, frankly. And our research has also found that for especially youth already at risk of marginalization, we found youth that are LGBTQ+, youth with any form of a disability are more likely to experience online meanness and cruelty. Um, and so, you know, they're already at risk of marginalization. And now, you know, these spaces have become even more risky and unsafe for them. And we're finding that, you know, one of the impacts of that are that young people are sort of withdrawing. And by that, Mm. I mean, not that they're completely exiting these spaces, but that they're less likely to engage. They're, again, less likely to speak out. Um, So it has a sort of silencing It's It's, look, there's a lot more that I wish we could get into because it's a much more in-depth survey and it's fascinating stuff, um, all all kinds of things. People can go to mediasmarts.ca and they can find this and they can look at this. And I I would encourage you to, because as I say, we're... We're using the word nuance. There's a lot of nuance here, but it's 
It's really, really interesting. Uh, Dr. Kara brisson boivin thank you so much for doing this today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Every spring... Oftentimes, while the weather is still very, very cold out, sometimes even snowing, thousands of people gather outside First Ontario Centre to run the Around the Bay race, whether it's the 30K or the 5K or the relays or whatever, thousands and thousands. It's it's such an integral part of Hamilton's tradition now. And the start-finish line forever, it seems, has been outside the arena. And then since 2006, I believe, finishing inside the arena as you come down the ramp. I've I've done the 5K once on a wet day. It's, an, it's a tricky footing thing coming down the ramp, but then you get to sprint up the middle to center ice, and it's, it's, it's a great feeling. But, well, the arena is undergoing renovations, as you know, and the Bulldogs are leaving uh, for a while, and the Hamilton Honey Badgers have left, and now the Around the Bay race has had to make some adjustments. Meaning the finish line obviously is not going to be there anymore. And if you were just listening to the news, well, you got the giveaway of where it's going to be. But let me bring in Anna Lewis, who is the race director of the Around the Bay Race, who made the announcement yesterday of how things are going to change. Anna, thanks for doing this this morning. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. So, uh, as I say, it's not really a secret at this point, but uh, instead of being at the center ice mark uh, at First Ontario Centre this year, the runners, or next year, 2024, the runners are going to finish at midfield at Tim Hortons Field. How long did it take to come up with that as your option if the option A was not available? Well, as soon as we heard that renovations would be... um undergoing um, in the future, we, we had to start thinking about where we would go um, because it does take a lot of planning and it will take the entire year for us to to work out all the details of how we are going to finish inside First Ontario Centre. Uh, so as soon as we kind of heard that um, redevelopment or, or renovations would be imminent, uh, we started thinking about where and, and we looked at, you know, some other options in the core, but I think we wanted something quite comparable to First Ontario Centre, and we felt that Tim Hortons Field was was that type of venue. One of the really f- interesting things, I guess, about your race, because of its name, even though you have to change a few things, you really can't change much. Uh, you, you, like, you couldn't say, you know, for the next three years, we're going to do it on the mountain, because it's mm-hmm. really hard to run around the bay if you're up on the mountain. You, you have to be sort of locked into a certain part of town to do this. Yes, and, you know, the, the race is celebrating its 129th anniversary. And in those 129 years, we, we did uh, miss a few years because of the war and, of, of course, COVID. But it did go around the bay. So it has to go around the water uh, to be true to its name, uh, to the traditions that have been started. So we are kind of limited in, in terms of uh, the route. But I think that's what keeps everyone coming back and what is is part of that history and tradition. Now, it, when you talk about history and tradition, it looks like, and I, and I know that you've said and, and you made very clear that we don't have the exact route yet. That's going to have to still be worked out. We know it's going to finish at Tim Hortons Field, but mm. it sounds as though if you, if, if with that now as part of the race, that this could be going back to the route that was there more recently, even until 2015 or 16, where it goes along Cannon as opposed to along Burlington. Like it, in other words, it doesn't have to be a completely different route than anyone's ever seen before. There are, there are historical routes that you could go to that could cover a lot of this. Yes. And the, the reason that we did change from Cannon to Burlington was the, the trains again. 
So it, it, we, I know a lot of participants uh, in the past enjoyed going along Canon, and um, the, we will look at it, but we'll also have to look at the impact that trains will have. So it, it's it, we have some base and we have some uh, starting points, um, but we also have to consider all the different factors of why we change those those routes. I, I mean, maybe it's a crazy question, but how many how many trains are coming along that route on a Sunday morning? I mean, is it enough that it would really potentially affect the race? So when it was on Canon, uh, I believe every year it was impacted by a race. Really? Okay. All right. But um, I think a lot of the times it was either later in the race so that it didn't impact as many participants. But there was an impact. There was a train uh, that crossed see, at some point. See, if it was later in the race and I was the one running because I'd be a straggler, I'd be loving the fact that I'd be forced to have a break for a few minutes while the train passed. <laughs> as long as it's not right at the front affecting the, the leaders. The, the only thing is we don't have a train schedule. So we perhaps that was by ha- a happenstance, but... Um, having that um, factor that is so unknown for someone who likes to organize and have every detail, um, you know, in their books uh, is difficult uh, to to plan around. <laughs> what is? Have you had any response? Now I know that you just made the announcement yesterday. Has there been any response to the idea of Tim Hortons Field instead of First Ontario Centre? Uh, there's lots of buzz, and, and thanks to uh, I think your article in the Spectator. <laughs> But there is lots of buzz, um, excitement, um, surprise, change, um, but it's all good. I think um, it, it will take getting used to. I think there's some uh, interest on how we're going to do it because it's going to be all outdoors. But again, before 2006, the race did finish outside First Ontario Centre, and it was outside. So, I mean, people have done it. They just don't remember, and um, it, it was really nice to be inside to mm. finish. Uh, for spectators and for participants, um, but we'll we'll make it work. And there are um, there are doors inside for uh, Tim Hortons Field, so we can open them and people can come in and warm up. So uh, I think we'll make it work. I asked you this yesterday, and I'm going to ask you now on the air because maybe you've had a little more time, and maybe maybe you've had a thought about this, but. One of the, uh, the, the signature part of this race, I think everyone would agree, would be Heartbreak Hill. And always that has been, or at least for a long time, right near the end of the race. You finish running all 30K, you've got about four left. You finish the hill, your legs are burning, but at least you know that you're right near the end. You've just got a flat run and you're home. Now this is going to change that. So does the fact that the hill comes earlier and your legs may be a little fresher, is that going to make it easier? Or is the fact that you still have a long way to go after you finish going to make this race harder? Well, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. The, the last part of the race is difficult. It's, it's mostly hills. Now, Valley Inn Road is the last major hill, but there's a number of rolling hills. So I think what we're going to have to do is really nail down the route early so that people can train and be prepared um, and mentally know when these hills hit them in the race. Um, so I think it's very important um, for everyone to know the route and where certain um, landmarks were before and where they are now. Mm. Um, so I think it, 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 all, it always goes back to training and, and preparation for any type of race and knowing the course and the, the landscape. Psychologically, it will be a different race for sure. Anna Lewis, director of the Around the Bay Road Race. Thanks for doing this this morning. 
Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A recent survey of U.S. online retailers found 40% of them said shipping prices were their biggest challenge in 2022. When you buy something online, it has to get to your door somehow. That's proving to be expensive. And now a number of companies have started charging for returns. You buy something online, you got to take it back to the store. They are charging you a restocking fee. When you get your your refund, you don't get a full refund. A little bit of that is taken off to cover the cost that is involved. Is this where we're going? Is this the new reality? Is this a good idea for business? Bruce Winder is a retail analyst and author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19 joins us now. Bruce, how are you today? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, thanks. I, I I suppose this is probably somewhat predictable, isn't it? At some point, all these things, everything ends up costing us eventually, right? Yeah, we've been sort of waiting for this shoe to drop for a little while now, and I think the catalyst has been the increase in online sales during the pandemic because it really wasn't sustainable. I mean, when online broke, call it, you know, 25 years ago, retailers had very uh, liberal return policies, but that was really designed just to increase participation. But now that it's a big channel, uh, you know, it's it's unsustainable the way it is right now. Well, and I would possibly, I, I could see myself getting cranky about this if I was in the position where I had to bring it back. On the other hand, if I've bought something online and the company has had to spend $10 to send it to me and then I return it, why shouldn't I pay some of that. I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not always on the side of the businesses, but th- this does seem to make some sense. Yeah, I think you're onto something because what's happened has been there's some fairly reckless behavior from a consumer standpoint. You know, people buying five things, knowing they were going to return two or three. It's like sort of they've, they've transferred the shopping, the fitting room from the store to their home. So they order a whole bunch of outfits knowing they're going to send a whole bunch back. And that costs companies a lot of money. So I think this is two parts. One is to disincentivize consumers from being so reckless with their returns, but also helping to cover the real costs involved in trying to move product backward. Yeah, and and, I, and as I said what I said, I would have a very different attitude to that if I have paid for shipping. If I paid for shipping and then they're charging me a restocking fee, different thing. I've already covered that cost. Right. But I, I'm reading here that um, Return Bear, which is a company, I guess, that uh, that deals with online stuff, mm-hmm. says 20 to 30% of online inventory is returned. That's, a, again, when you're considering that the companies are paying to send that, that's an enormous amount of money that they are just flushing down the toilet. It is. It makes, you know, it really prohibits, that that line item alone prohibits companies from really making any money with their online channel. So it's something that is yelling and screaming at companies, look, fix me now, because there's it's really impossible, especially with companies that send out, you know, garments and and footwear and other type of try-on items, you can't make money on your online venture unless you tighten those controls. And again, my my expectation was I was going to be, as I started thinking about this, well, I'm going to be bent out of shape about this. But the more I'm talking about it, the more it it seems to make sense. And especially because... Bruce, if, if the company has to eat 30% or whatever, whatever the amount is, if they have to eat the money that is being spent on shipping and I shop at that company, guess who's going to end up getting hit with higher prices to cover that? It's exactly. me. Exactly. You're going to pay for it indirectly in the price anyways. Yeah. So if someone else is doing this, I'm going to be the one that pays for this. So I would prefer, if, as long as I'm not abusing the system, I would prefer that this be the case. No. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think consumers sort of, most consumers realize, you know, the gravy train is over and they're going to have to be more responsible 
in terms of how they handle returns. And it's a two-way street, right? Companies have to make sure that there's a reasonable ability for consumers to determine if they like the product by looking at it online. There's also sizing technology that's coming out that enables consumers to size themselves better with online product. But consumers also have to be less reckless in terms of the way they buy and the way they shop and to put more effort into it to realize that, you know what, hey, this isn't an automatic two-way street. It can be a bit of a one-way street sometimes. Do you think then, okay, so let's say the, the choice was put in the consumer's hands to say you can have free shipping, but there will be a fee if you return it, or you can pay for shipping, but there's no fee if you return it. Which one do you think consumers would take? Well, it's hard to know. I mean, consumers are sort of uh, a selfish bunch. We're a, bun- we're a selfish bunch. So, I mean, you know, it, it really depends on the situation. But consumers will always try to minimize their cost up front. So if there's a way they can get free shipping, um, they're going to probably do it. But they're, usually they're, they want their cake and eat it too. They want the free shipping and then they want the return privileges. And that's kind of where we're at now. They're spoiled a little bit. So that that's really the, the tough thing is sort of reversing some of that. Yeah, I, I, we see the word free, and that's always a good thing. There's something else, though. Exactly. And do you believe that we condition people, that companies can condition people to things? Because once we've offered this, it's one thing to have never offered this. It's one thing to have said from the beginning, you will pay a return fee if you give it back. But we've, I think we've conditioned people to expect it's free, which is going to make switching it a lot harder. Yeah, it's a good point, and that's really, you know, that's really one of the one of the things that retailers used twenty years ago, twenty five years ago, to get people to buy online. You know, because people were nervous about buying online, saying, "Hey, what if it's not what I think it is? What if it doesn't fit? No, thanks, I'm I'm not going to buy it online." So retailers said, "Hey, we've got to reduce that barrier. Let's let's open up free returns, no hassle returns." So retailers kind of did it to themselves 20, 25 years ago, just to get consumers to jump on, you know, retail uh, as a channel, online as a channel. But now to your point, they've got to wean the consumer off it. So could this push people back to bricks and mortar stores? Or is this just something that people will now get used to? A little bit of both. Some people will think twice. They might think, well, you know what, I might go try that on because I don't want to pay these fees. And some people will just say, no, I get it. You know what, this is just part of, this is just the new landscape, the new table stakes, and I'm okay with that. So you'll, you'll have a bit of both, actually. It's a really tricky one because we are tired of being dinged for everything. We are tired of paying more for everything. And when you add sure. something else to the table here, uh, I understand how we would be cranky about this, but this, Bruce, is one of those times, and, and I even catch myself by surprise on this one, this is one of those times when I say, no, no, I, I think I'm on the side of the companies in this case. Yeah, it really is hard to sort of um, critique the companies because, you know, I think everyone knows that consumers have been abusing returns for so many years. So unlike, you know, going to the grocery store and seeing prices up 11%, you say, no, I kind of get this, you know, this makes sense. You know, if I was a business owner, I would probably concur with this too. It is a tricky one. Bruce Winder, retail analyst, author of Retail Before, During and After COVID-19. Bruce, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, no problem. Take care. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We have had for a long time now politicians acknowledging of all stripes, of all political parties, we need more housing units, whether it's how, what kind of units, well, we may disagree on that, and where they're built and whether they're in the suburbs or built up or whatever else. That kind of stuff we disagree on, but there is no disagreement, it seems, that we need in this province a lot of new homes. 
And the number generally that's thrown around is 1.5 million new homes over roughly the next decade or so in order to handle the people who want a place right now, who need a place to live now, as well as the people who will be coming to this province, as well as people coming to Hamilton. We're talking about 235,000 new Hamiltonians by 2050, if I recall that number. It's a lot of new people. So we need to build a lot of new homes. Here is the challenge, as has been pointed out. To build homes, we don't have robots to do that. You need people to do that. And right now, the Ontario government says it's 100,000 workers short to do that. 100,000. Now, who knows if that number is exactly right. But the point is, we are way, 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 way short. How do you bridge that gap? Mike Collins-Williams is the CEO of the West End Home Builders Association, joins us now. Mike, thanks for this today. Good morning, Scott. Thank you for having me. That is a daunting, daunting number. Let's say it's not 100,000. Let's say it's 80,000. Let's say it's 50,000. It's a huge number of workers that we don't have to try and get this work done. It's a huge issue in terms of the skilled labor shortages that we are facing uh, across the construction sector and Keep in mind, that's not just for the housing. Uh, We need to build roads. We need to build schools. We need to build hospitals. Um, You know, growth is a good thing, uh, but we do have a tremendous challenge over the coming years in terms of actually building that much needed housing and all of the required infrastructure that goes with it. Uh, And it's it's a whole range of jobs, uh, whether it's plumbers, concrete uh, formers, carpenters, uh, you know, there, there's a whole range of jobs out there that do need to be filled. And, and you did hit the right number. It's, it's Ontario has forecasted that over the next decade, we'll need 100,000 more construction workers to help deliver that, uh, that goal of building those 1.5 million homes by 2031, along with the infrastructure that's needed to go with it. And let's, let's focus on one word you just said in there, skilled, because this is not just, you can't just pick someone up off the street and say, hey, well, you're just going to carry wood from point A to point B. You need to learn how to do a lot of this stuff. You need to train people. So it's not like even if we could round up 100,000 people, we could put them to work immediately doing the work now. There is going to be a time frame to train all these people as well as gathering them. We have to prepare them. It it, it requires a mix of solutions. So uh, you hit the nail on the head. It is skilled trades. Um, These are often positions that require um, training uh, to be an apprentice. Um, We do have a robust uh, community colleges and apprenticeship system in Ontario and on any given construction site, you'll have journey persons and, and young apprentices learning their trade. Um, and, you know, you, you can't snap your fingers and it happens overnight. This is something that is going to take time uh, to trade, to train that next generation of uh, skilled tradespeople. Uh, and part of that's the training that we need to do here in Ontario. And the other component is that we we do have a lot of immigration coming into Canada, coming into Ontario, and we need to start thinking about repositioning who we're bringing in and what skills are they bringing with them. Um, and part of that is to target those carpenters, those plumbers, those concrete formers, etc. cetera. Uh, and the other component is to actually recognize um, foreign credentials. You know, somebody that is trained to be an electrician, uh, whether it's in, in Poland, Australia, India, etc., cetera, um, you know, we need to do a better job of, um, you know, testing to ensure that they have the skills, but to, to quickly uh, recognize those skills uh, and integrate them into our local workforce. Do we have, is the expectation that we have anywhere close to 100,000 
future workers in the system now in training in community colleges or trade schools or anything? Is there anywhere close to that who are approaching being ready? I, I wish I could give you a very positive, happy uh, answer, but um, there is a lot of concern within the industry around how we are going to train and staff up. Um, there's a lot of pressure today. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about the future, but just today alone, uh, there's a lot of pressure on those construction sites. Um, there's a lot of cost escalation in terms of um, wages, uh, in terms of uh, let me jump in there. So the materials, Ma- yeah, Mike, let me jump in there for a sec because I, I, I'm so glad you raised that because this is where this becomes very tricky. We want new homes, but everybody complains, and I think justifiably so, about the price of a new home. It costs a lot of money to buy a place now, but if we now have to find all these workers. Because there's a shortage and a lot of people are saying, you know, not just with these jobs, other jobs, uh, the pay isn't good enough. You're going to have to lure me into this. This can only mean higher costs to the workforce, which is going to translate into higher costs for homes. It's a cycle here that we're creating that we're trying to build more to bring the prices down. And yet the prices are going to necessarily have to go up to pay for this. The Altus Group uh, is a cost consultant that works with builders and developers and municipalities uh, across Canada. And if you look at their uh, percent change just in construction costs, I mean, you think that the average inflation that we're experiencing uh, across the country is bad. Um, construction costs in 2022 are up between 20 and 30 percent um, just in terms of the actual hard construction cost of getting, you know, that's whether it's housing schools, hospitals. So there's massive inflation pressures. And a component of that is the lack of skilled trades and workers. And the other component is that uh, a lot of the materials such as concrete going into uh, building high rises is escalated significantly. Now, the positive spin I would put on that to any young people listening is that a career in construction, a career in the skilled trades is a very lucrative career. So if you're a young person in high school thinking about your next steps, um, you know, university is not for everyone. You can make six figures great point. on yep. a construction site um, building housing. Great, great point that gets often lost. And uh, we've said it before, but it's, there is no shame. Maybe once upon a time, I don't know, maybe once upon a time it was seen as not living up to whatever, but there is no shame in going into these skilled trades that you can make an excellent living doing this. And not everybody has to be a lawyer or a doctor. Great point. Uh, Mike Collins-Williams, we wish we could keep going. We've got to run. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time today. Really appreciate that. Thank you. Have a fantastic day. You as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Probably know that music. It was by, it's from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory by Roald Dahl, the British author. Well, his writings are now being tweaked, let's say. His publishing house has decided that, for example, the monstrous tractors in the Fanta- in Fantastic Mr. Fox are no longer black. The earthworm in James the Giant Peach isn't pink and doesn't have lovely pink skin, but lovely smooth skin. No one in his books are pale. Uh, Mrs. Silver in SEO Trot is kind, not attractive anymore. The word fat has been taken out of all of the books that he has done. Other updates in uh, the fantastic Mr. Fox, each man will have a gun and a flashlight has become each person will have a person and a flashlight. And on and on, this apparently is to make the books more palatable for the current generation. Some say this is outrageous. Some say, no, this is just good business. It's commercially savvy. 
Sylvia McNichol is a Burlington-based author of What the Dog Knows and Body Swap. She joins us now. Sylvia, thanks for doing this today. Hi, Scott. How are you? I am great. How are you doing? Great. It's such an interesting discussion that sparked, you know, I, I, I brought this up with my writing group and our worst horror is like having someone called inclusive minds look over our work after we're dead and start substituting little words in order to make it better. But um, really, Roald Dahl, his appeal is that he's so over the top. You cannot take him seriously. So changing... Pa- uh, white to pale, it just, it astounds me. Well, th- I mean, there are certain things in here, that, like there are some things that he has written that are uncomfortable, clearly, but I do wonder still if un- if, if being uncomfortable or facing uncomfortable ideas, if it's the place of us in a society to purge that. Because there, there's the idea that, you know what, we should face uncomfortable things head on and talk about them. To Kill a Mockingbird, for example, could never get written today, probably. Um, but we are faced with uncomfortable and negative ideas that we have to look through and go, who is the hero of this and what's wrong with this? But if you take out some of the words there, it would entirely, I think, change what that book means and how that resonates same thing here. I wonder if the idea here is, is it, is it smart to take away everything that might make us feel skittish or uncomfortable or doesn't fit in with today's words? Well, in, in this case, remember, these books are for children. And I feel the audience that's reaching for it is probably the retro audience. So parents say, oh, I love this book. I'm going to get it for my children. Um, do they care that pale has or white has turned to pale or all black references have been removed. Um, there's still Trunchbull and all these, as I said, over-the-top things. I believe they don't care. And, uh, and, I, and I think we're, we're so worried about kids' books and those words and how they affect the child sitting in the classroom. Because I guess we're, maybe we, we don't want to vet anymore for our children. We just want them to read by themselves and, and, and the teacher doesn't have time perhaps to read the book before and cross out words or, you know, if there's an F-bomb or something like that. So, so writing for children is definitely different than for adults and uncomfortable truths. Maybe what's uncomfortable to the librarian or the teacher or the adult is not yet uncomfortable for the child. And then I guess we're worried that children may mimic behavior or words from books. But again, Trunchbull, uh, all these over-the-top caricatures, I cannot see how a child would take away that behavior and, and do it you know, use it themselves, act that way themselves. I do. So this is just rolled all right now, and this has created an outrage. I, I, I would suspect, though, that if they're doing it here, we will see it other places as well with other authors. And I do wonder where this goes. Who is the arbiter then, and how far do we go? I mean, if the word attractive is no longer allowed to be used. I I don't know that anybody would be offended at being called attractive. Um, if attractive is no longer acceptable and you have to replace that with kind, it, it, it really does seem that we are taking things in this case and maybe further to somewhere that everything is so bland and so boring and so meaningless. Well, there's two things at issue here. 
I think old school writing often equated if you were good on the inside, it showed on the outside. So these characters look good because they are good. The ugly characters, the ones with a horsey face, as Roald Dahl says, those are the ones who have unattractive personalities. So they're substituting kind because that was what the metaphor meant. Uh, the second issue, I have forgotten what it is, <laughs> but, uh, yes. So, um, but as I say, who becomes oh, the arbiter? The words, I will say that all of us, uh, supposedly a writer is sensitive and then supposedly again, the editor is sensitive and we are not edited once we are edited multiple times. We're edited for substance. We're edited for, you know, small mistakes, uh, copy edited. So these pe people are all sensitive people looking at the work for children. The idea that we now engage a separate sensitivity uh, company or, or, or person who is sensitive enough to judge whether each word is offensive or inoffensive to the reader yeah, and Sylvia, again, like I, you're, you're absolutely right that right now this is for children's books, but the fact that this is even being done here leads me to believe again that this will not be the only place this is done. And, you know, at what point oh, do we yeah. start getting into classic literature and saying, well, we can't, you know, The, the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Uh, you know, we got to rewrite that if we're going to have that out anywhere because someone may be upset by it. Or as I say, To Kill a Mockingbird or this or that or the other. I, 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 I worry that this is cracking open a door to a Pandora's box that w we shouldn't be doing. People who wrote stuff, love it or don't love it, read it or don't read it, but they wrote it and we should leave it alone. In a period. And let it, uh, Philip Pullman said, let it fade away. Now, if, uh, in order to prepare for this interview, I was looking for a book and I didn't look in my house. I looked at all over the GTA, all of his books are out and his sales have soared. So, uh, Philip Pullman said, just let it fade away. And I would argue that Mark Twain, Indigenous people feel offended by his stories and, and Blacks as well. Again, do we rewrite them? And then everyone goes to the library and gets them and buys the book. I mean, it, it is a cash cow for the estate. Oh, I don't doubt. Puffin. I don't doubt that. Uh, Sylvia McNichol, the uh, Burlington-based author of What the Dog Knows and Body Swap. We really appreciate you taking time today. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, Scott. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.